Good evening. Marianne O'Brien Malkin has been connected with Rare Book School from the beginning. That is to say, since 1983, when Rare Book School began in New York City. She formerly attended Rare Book School classes. I don't think this one is on. You see, I'm not Mike, the speaker's mic, so I'll just uh, take a short nap. Uh, this is the deadest room in which I've ever spoken, and that's saying something. Uh, Mrs. Malkin attended Rare Book School classes in 1983 and in every year thereafter for the next several years. Since then, she has been one of our principal ambassadors, always here for at least a fair amount of the four weeks during which we are open for business each summer. Her presence enriches the school. Most of you here know A.B. Bookman's Weekly, a useful weekly magazine carrying bookseller ads for used and rare books wanted and for sale. Marianne Malkin's late husband, Saul M. Malkin, founded A.B. Bookman's Weekly and edited it for a generation. The Malkins sold A.B. in the early 1970s and it continues to this day, though most persons would agree that its salad days were during the Malkins' tenure as editors and publishers. A.B. Bookman's Weekly made its debut in 1948 as the Antiquarian Bookman. It was published by the R.R. Bowker Company as a spin-off of the so-called back half of Publishers Weekly. It included dealer's lists of books wanted and a few single copies of books for sale. The front matter of Antiquarian Bookman consisted of trade news of interest to dealers, collectors, and librarians, and it included a column written by Jake Blank providing news, musings, and gossip about the book trade. In 1984, Marianne Malkin began to support an annual lecture in honor of Saul Malkin's contributions to the antiquarian book trade. Michael Winship gave the first Saul M. Malkin lecture in bibliography under Book Arts Press auspices at Columbia University in December 1985. In time for Saul Malkin to congratulate Winship on his performance, though Malkin himself was too ill to attend. Indeed, Saul M. Malkin died in 1986, a few months after Winship delivered the lecture. Malkin lectures over the years have included Robert Darnton, Christopher DeHamel, Lucian Goldschmidt, Catherine Kais Lieb, Paul Needham, Kenneth Rendell, Bernard M. Rosenthal, Anthony Rhoda, Justin Schiller, Roger Stoddard, Thomas Tansel, and Marjorie Wynn. It's a great pleasure to introduce the 1999 Saul M. Malkin lecturer in bibliography, William P. Barlow, Jr., tax accountant, advisors to book collectors, institutional and individual, bibliophile, and book collector, a serious collector, a very serious collector, as you will shortly discover. It's a great pleasure to welcome him to this podium tonight, where he speaks of his, or some of his, adventures in book collecting. Hi, my name is Bill, and I'm a collector. You know, in the past when I've used that line, 
the audience has been much more supportive. <laughs> Many of the previous Malkin lectures have been about book selling. That's as it should be, since uh, uh, the periodical that Saul Malkin founded, Antiquarian Bookman, was all about book selling. But the bookseller can hardly exist without the book buyer. And so I do not think I have to apologize for shifting the emphasis 180 degrees this evening. Collecting, I believe, is something that you are, not something that you do. I suppose I've always accumulated things, but I became a serious collector almost 50 years ago when I selected the Baskerville Press as the focus of my collecting interests. But this is not about Baskerville nor does the title Adventures in Book Collecting imply an A. Edward Newton-ish sermon uh, and admiring, uh, uh, of acquiring and admiring literary and typographic treasures. There will be no reminiscences of how I snatched uh, hidden gems from great but unsuspecting booksellers or how I outfoxed the competition at a public auction. In fact, there are no great book dealers or traditional auctioneers involved at all. And the adventures began uh, just two years ago. All of us occasionally acquire things uh, without much thought about their use or desirability. At some point, such acquisitions become a collection. I've always thought that owning three of the same sort of thing is a collection, although some have assured me that the critical mass is as low as two. In any event, when at some point you realize that you have several of something and that one, or perhaps none, would satisfy any imaginable utilitarian purpose, you have a collection. A couple of years ago, this realization struck me about a handful of picture postcards of restaurants that I had acquired. As an experienced collector and one who actively attempts to teach others how to collect, I knew two things instantly. First, I would acquire more restaurant postcards. <laughs> and secondly, I needed to define the limit of the collection before it got out of control. Some of you may be wondering why I was so sure of the first of my realizations. I have what is almost certainly the best collection of Baskerville Press in private hands. I also have what I believe to be a fairly strong collection in the history of bibliography and auction and private library catalogs. Nearly, nearly 2,000 feet of shelf space is allocated to auction and dealer catalogs and there are hundreds of cartons of additional catalogs waiting to be sorted and shelved. Why did I need another collection? To the extent that collecting means acquiring, neither Baskerville nor bibliography can now qualify. The scarcity of what I lack and the cost of what I lack when it is found limit my additions in these areas to a few items a year. That's simply not enough packages to open. <laughs> no collection is ever complete, but as a collection approaches completion, a compulsive collector has to expand his horizons. 
Perhaps the most serious mistake that any collector makes is the failure to focus his efforts. I learned this lesson within a year after starting to collect seriously some 45 years ago. From a brief enthusiasm for finely printed books from all periods and countries, I shortly turned to a very much narrower theme in the press of John Baskerville of Birmingham. That's not Birmingham, Alabama for those locals, however. Even when a theme has been determined, a collection can grow in ways that were never contemplated. A collection without a theme will never go beyond being an accumulation and a disappointment. I realized, looking at that handful of postcards, that from the 1920s to the 1960s, virtually every restaurant, from the roadside motel with a diner attached to the fancy big city dining establishments, all had postcards. Postcards, along with matchbook covers, were the restaurant advertising media of the day. Many restaurants even offered to mail your cards for you after you had penned glowing descriptions of your meal at the table. A few even pre-printed their own glowing descriptions <laughs> just in case you proposed to limit your message to wish you were here. It did not take too long to find the limiting and unifying factor. In fact, it was printed right on some of the postcards, like this one from the Colony Inn near Richmond, Virginia, recommended by Duncan Hines. Those of you who are under the age of 40 may be forgiven for thinking that Duncan Hines is a cake mix or that his persona is like that of Betty Crocker, entirely imaginary. Those of us over 60 should recognize him as a, per a real person whose books made the phrase recommended by Duncan Hines a part of the language. There were three books by Duncan Hines that were intended to be taken on the road by the traveling salesman or motoring family. The most important to me, and the first to be published in 1936, is Adventures in Good Eating. In 1938, Lodging for a Night first appeared, recommending hotels, and more enthusiastically, country inns in out-of-the-way places. The final part of this trilogy was The Vacation Guide, started in 1949, covering some of the same ground, but with an emphasis on resorts, where one would expect to spend a week or more. The first two books were required reading for the happy motoring family. And to make that point, an imitation leather pouch that held them both was also briefly offered. I have yet to find one of these. Another major Duncan Hines publication was Adventures in Good Cooking and the Art of Carving in the Home, 1939. Well... Uh, well, now we got something back here. Do I need to turn it back on? All right, there we go. <clears throat> Presenting recipes from many of the restaurants listed in Adventures in Good Eating, along with those sent in by readers, it was not intended to stay. It was intended to stay at home and not necessarily to re be replaced annually. As a result, it is perhaps ten times as common as any of the other three publications. The fact that it emphasizes the art of carving in the home tells a lot about the Duncan Hines period 
as Americans moved from eating to dining. Duncan Hines not only reflected this movement, he helped to create it. Adventures in good eating tended to recommend restaurants that would be rarely included in lists today. Hotel restaurants, for example, loomed large. But Duncan Hines aimed toward covering the entire country, with Canada and Mexico thrown in as well. And hotels were often the only reliable sources of food in remote areas. The national restaurant chains now in every hamlet and at every freeway interchange did not exist. Regional chains were just beginning to form and would have been unfamiliar to out-of-state motorists. Even in fairly sizable towns, the only place one might see a tablecloth was in a hotel. Duncan Hines also recommended a lot of cafeterias and tea rooms, establishments which have largely disappeared from the scene and certainly no longer register on any gourmet list. Certainly in the major cities, uh, but Adventures in Good Eating was not a gourmet list. In the major cities like San Francisco, New York, and particularly Chicago, which was the center of Duncan Hines' business world, the major restaurants were covered. But even in those cities, lower-priced and family restaurants were included for balance. For New York, recognizing the impossibility of a guide that aimed for national coverage uh, achieving any kind of representation, Duncan Hines suggested that readers turn to Lawton McCall's Knife and Fork in New York, first published in 1948, and one of the earlier regional restaurant guides for additional restaurants. At the same time, Duncan Hines was early in recommending a variety of ethnic restaurants and, despite the fact that he was a teetotaler himself, had Julian Street write an introductory article on wines. But this is not a talk about the history or significance of Duncan Hines. I've not done the research to support that, and I don't know that anyone else has either. This talk is about the formation of a collection and, as you will see, the techniques and resources that are now available to make such a collection possible. Once I had defined my field of collecting as the restaurants recommended by Duncan Hines, the obvious next step was to make a list of those restaurants. I had one edition at hand, a 1950 guide which had been well used by our family over several years of summertime travel. I found two more editions at a bookstore here in Charlottesville, and Peter Macy, a Massachusetts dealer in ephemeral and lower-end technical publications, had another in one of his catalogs. When encouraged, Macy turned up two or three more editions and quoted them to me. A couple of copies came not surprisingly from specialist cookbook dealers, but of the 55 or 60 printings of the book which apparently exist, no others have come through traditional book collecting sources. Enter the internet. There are several ways of approaching the world stock of books on the internet. Some dealers have made all or large parts of their stock uh, searchable and provided links to their pages through ABAA web pages. Others have listed books in multi-dealer databases using such services as ABE, Bibliofind, or BiblioCity. I acquired several more editions uh, through these sources. Then along came MXBF.com, 
which has now changed its name and address to bookfinder.com. That service searches eight other used book search engines in a fraction of the time required to hit all the services individually. With several copies now in hand, latent bibliographical techniques demanded to be put to use. Long ago, I had my knuckles wrapped by a well-known bibliographer when I suggested that only important books deserve bibliographical knowledge and analysis. Not all editions of Adventures in Good Eating I found were in the familiar red cover. This 1958 edition echoes the dust cover on Duncan Hines' 1955 autobiography. The earliest editions did not have a year date on the cover or title page in the year of publication can only be ascertained from the copyright dates. It also became clear that there were multiple printings within the yearly editions, although I simply do not have enough of the early issues to determine what this third printing of the fifth edition actually represents. This 1940 volume continues with edition 7, but the printing number of 10 probably harks back to the first 1936 printing, or at least as many of the early printings as could then be remembered. Later editions dropped edition numbers, continuing with the consecutively numbered printings. This 30th printing shows a copyright date of 1946. A little later, the printing number disappeared from the title page and turned up as a small number on its verso. There are even issues within printings. This 1960 edition differs from other examples of the 53rd printing only in the special imprint on the cover and inserted advertising for Squib. Now well, we have to wait again. Right? So we know we, did, the, the, did the projector just go out? Or? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, I, yeah, okay. Now we seem to be back again. Um, <clears throat> clearly, this was intended for presentation to doctors. Uh, but bookfinder.com has its limitations, too. After all, a copy of Adventures in Good Eating retails from $5 to $15. It's not a major item to established bookstores. Also, once the supply has been cleaned out, it's slow to be replenished. This time it was eBay that came to the fore. Everyone seems to have heard of eBay recently, if only as a stock which uh, has gone from 18 to 400 since its initial public offering in September of 1998, or as an object of investigation by the Attorney General of Pennsylvania or the New York City Consumer Affairs Department. Radio ads describe eBay as the world's largest treasure hunt but a better description would be as the world's largest flea market. Almost anything you may have thrown away can likely be repurchased on eBay. And anything you may have wished to own will also be there. Once, while I was searching for an oyster bar menu, I found a bed of Rolex watches. Everything is available. More than two million items on any given day at a sort of auction. It's much closer to the silent auction of charity groups than it is to Sotheby's, 
Lots generally close at a precisely measured period after being posted, and some of the most frantic bidding takes place in the final minutes. Most items, however, either languish without a bid or close after rising no higher than they open. The mini merchants who sell on eBay have produced several additional copies of Adventures in Good Eating at prices that vary more widely than those on book-oriented search engines. From these copies, I have developed my list of Duncan Hines restaurants and the dates that each was listed. Based on the number of new restaurants added when I acquire a new edition, I imagine that there are about 11,000 listed restaurants and that my list is about 98% complete. eBay also led me to other restaurant ephemera. I'd acquired a few menus of Duncan Hines restaurants from a pile at a bookstore dealing in books on food and wine in Los Angeles. On eBay, a menu search will turn up seven to 800 menus at any given time. Most are not of interest to me, since ship, train, and airline menus tend to dominate, but there are plenty to choose from. The small one, by the way, is a wine list. <clears throat> I don't think Terry would approve. <clears throat> now menus have become more interesting to me than postcards, and I have several hundred. That shouldn't be surprising, since menus give a better indication of what a restaurant was like than gussied up pictures of interiors and exteriors. But while there are established markets for postcards with regular multi-dealer shows, the market for menus is not well organized, and it's only with the advent of eBay that a collection can be easily formed. I've even been learning the methods of collecting and preserving matchbox covers. Reverse strikes are out, but features and contours are in. The market for these, once almost exclusively limited to trading among collectors, has also been affected by eBay. Usually, one learns to collect by experience, often bitter experience. There are aids, like John Carter's ABCs of Book Collecting, kept current by Nicholas Barker, or the two volumes edited by, edited by Gene Peters. Dare I mention that Terry Bellinger and I teach a course on the subject here at Rare Book School. In fact, if I didn't, I'd be taking a risk, it seems to me. <clears throat> we can learn from other collectors and from dealers, and we can apply experience from one type of collecting to another, from coins and stamps to books, for example. Perhaps the most important and sensitive collecting issue is that of scarcity and price. John Carter would have understood that the earliest and latest editions of Adventures in Good Eating would be scarce. I have none before 1938 and none after 1960. But experience and subsequent reflection makes it logical that the years of World War II would be tough. I have two printings from 1945, but only one from 1942 through 1944. With wartime gas rationing, the family motoring vacation on which Duncan Hines relied did not exist, and patriotic paper drives may well have eaten up much of what was produced. So is $5 right and $15 wrong for the rest of the printings? The answer is, what difference does it make? If I pay $5 or even $10 too much for 20 or 30 copies, the total is immaterial. On the other hand, 
were I to pay even $1 too much for each of the 15 to 20,000 postcards I might want to have, the total becomes quite significant. The same logic applies to menus. Why does one menu bring $2 and another go to 25 Part of it, of course, is the vagaries of the eBay auction process. But patterns do develop, and I have come to set my own standards for what a menu is worth to me. A menu that was intended to be taken away or mailed to friends, as with the several varieties of menu booklets from Knott's Berry Farm, should be, and indeed are, more common than those which uh, the restaurant uh, clearly intended to retain. I'm not quite sure how somebody got away with this menu from Anderson's in Buellton, California, although I'm glad that they did. <laughs> not all Duncan Hines restaurants are famous. Few besides a Duncan Hines collector might desire a well-used menu from the Bell Cafe in Waynesville, Missouri. But fame brings bids, and bids raise prices, perhaps the ultimate are the remarkable prices, several hundred dollars in some cases, which menus and other memorabilia from New York Stork Club regularly seem to fetch. Fame may generate demand, but supply has its effect on price as well. It's very hard to judge what the supply might be for a menu. How large was the restaurant? Was there a daily menu or a semi-permanent one? What happened to outdated menus? Were menus jealously guarded or handed out as souvenirs? Some restaurants, like Mater's German restaurant in Milwaukee, churned out souvenirs. Menus, steins, posters, trays, and even playing cards. For personal reasons, I'm wont to bid up higher for restaurants where I have dined, even if it brings a dessert or luncheon menu, uh, which to me is less interesting than a dinner menu. In his 1955 autobiography, Duncan Hines mentioned some 39 restaurants that he said had been listed in every edition of uh, Adventures in Good Eating since the beginning in 1936. While some, in fact, had been omitted in one or more years, it is, for me, a priority list. Fifteen of those 39 restaurants appear to survive today, a much higher survival rate than the rest of them, including Antoine's, in, in uh, New Orleans, Hackney's in Atlantic City, <laughs> Mrs. K's Toll House in Silver Springs, Maryland, the Dearborn Inn in Dearborn, Michigan, Chalet Suzanne in Lake Wales, Florida, original old bookbinders in Philadelphia, and Virginia's Williamsburg Inn. There is also cross-collecting competition, which affects price. Because they are wanted by print collectors, menus from the Royal Hawaiian Hotel on Waikiki are rarely cheap. Collectors of gambling memorabilia run up Las Vegas casino items, including menus and postcards. With so many postcards to choose from, I've had to develop standards as to which ones are more desirable. Not only are there over 10,000 restaurants to choose from, but there are often dozens of views of each restaurant. These four views of San Francisco's famed Cliff House cover half a century and reveal uh, the several recognized types of cards, 
divided back, white border era, linen era, and photochrome era. Still other restaurants published a series showing a variety of views. Cute and clever is also popular. Today's postal service would surely frown on the wooden postcards uh, produced for Grissons steak and chicken houses which were across the street from one another on Van Ness Avenue in San Francisco. But these went safely through the mail, even receiving machine cancels. While many postcard collectors demand mint condition, I prefer those that have been postally used with a postmark date that preferably falls within the period of the restaurant's inclusion in Duncan Hines. An additional plus goes to a card that advertises its inclusion in Adventures in Good Eating, and three stars are awarded for those that also carry a message that indicates the correspondent ate there. Book collectors are constantly concerned about condition, and so are postcard collectors. A collecting truism is that the more common something is, the more value is attached to collect condition. Standards must be slightly relaxed when used postcards are preferred. With menus, further latitude may be necessary. One menu collector has written that menus are often found folded as a result of storage. To this, I say nonsense. Menus are found folded because that's the only way they could be stolen. <laughs> to find a large menu unfolded is unusual. This one from the Windjammer in Seattle is 16 inches high and is made of some sort of fiberglass. How it left the restaurant is anyone's guess, but folding was not an option. The real problem with restaurant ephemera is dating. Collecting postally used postcards helps, although postcards are not infrequently mailed years later. And if the postcard has a uh, postmark city doesn't match the picture, the chances are uh, higher that this is so. All sorts of methods can be used to date menus. Some, of course, were printed daily with a date. Daily menus were a steady source of job shop income for the first half of this century and are now coming back as a result of in-restaurant computers. Sometimes an insert or list of specials was dated. A printer's code in the lower corners uh, will uh, occasionally reveal a date and quantity printed. Some restaurants are anxious to exploit their age and issue anniversary menus. Restaurants to supporting our troops, wartime rationing, or later OPA and OPS regulations uh, can be useful. Less reliable methods uh, include guesses based on vintages given in wine lists, which were not often given at all in most, in most of this period, sales tax rates, and most unreliable of all, prices. Even determining what a restaurant menu, uh, what restaurant a menu comes from can be challenging. There are a lot of colonial inns, and more than two dozen are recommended by Duncan Hines. Identifying this as the colonial inn in Minneapolis is only an educated guess. This establishment used a stock Mexican restaurant cover, but failed to print the name of the restaurant on the cover. It was designed to go in the moon. Based on the titles of some of the specialties, 
It appears to be El Paseo in Los Angeles. There's some, uh, there's some bibliographical I investigation that could be carried out, waiting to be done, on the various printings of Adventures in Good Eating as well. Duncan Hines was, before starting his publications as he neared retirement, a printing salesman. He certainly knew the process and how to avoid uh, escalating costs. Every printing shows some changes with restaurants added and deleted. Little homilies and letters of praise from readers used much like newspaper fillers in the beginning were later used to fill the space of deleted restaurants and to avoid otherwise difficult and expensive page makeup revisions. The use of standing type and the frequency of revisions will make an interesting study one day. It would be difficult to assemble a collection such as this and impossible to acquire it as quickly without the internet. But of course there are drawbacks. Most rare book dealers started their apprenticeships in the shipping room and they know how to pack a book so that it arrives much as it left their hands. Few eBay sellers have had any apprenticeship at anything. <laughs> Some of them indeed have very little sense. This box was used to ship a menu just slightly wider than the box itself. The result could be predicted. Things are not always as advertised. Words like rare and unique are thrown around rather casually. But since most of the items are pictured, the misdescription can be an advantage as often as a disadvantage. Many of us would instantly recognize the performer on the cover of this menu from the Roosevelt Hotel in New Orleans as Ted Lewis. But the person who offered this on eBay interpreted the autograph as Ted Leach and even invented an elaborate history of that famous band leader <laughs> to help sell the item. There may even be some fraud out there, although that this is at the low end of the collecting scale, there really isn't that much reason or profit in it. eBay is an extraordinary piece of software, and although it may occasionally collapse from overload, it seems to continually improve. A collection such as this can be augmented almost indefinitely. A modest sum can keep a steady flow of objects coming in the mail. Indeed, the postage can sometimes be the larger cost involved in acquisitions. But a collector needs more than a flow of interesting but common. He needs a few real rarities out there. I already have identified a few of these. I yearn for an example of the metal sign that hung outside favored restaurants proclaiming that the establishment is recommended by Duncan Hines. What a choice item to hang in the dining room. There must have been tens of thousands of them made, and they were changed from time to time to prevent banished restaurants from falsely advertising. Where have they gone? I have yet to see or hear of one. Duncan Hines' autobiography suggests other desiderata. The genesis of Adventures in Good Eating was a Christmas pamphlet sent to friends with Duncan Hines' personal list of restaurants and inns. It was the praise and demand for this that led to the commercial venture. That little booklet must be very scarce, but a few are out there somewhere. 
and Duncan Hines mentions that there was an annual party to which all included restaurateurs were invited. There must be ephemera related to these parties, invitations, menus, cocktail napkins, whatever. While such items are obviously appropriate and desirable, there may be temptations to become overextended. There are matchbook covers and ashtrays. I now have some of both. And for that matter, this matchbook cover for the recently closed Spenger's Fish Grotto in Berkeley <coughs> fits in the collection perfectly. Monogrammed restaurant china can be found on the internet, and I have accumulated some fascinating pieces. I have trouble turning down demitasse sets. <coughs> Perhaps because I don't drink coffee and would not be tempted to use them. While many china designs are simple statements of the restaurant's name and location. Others are as elaborate as this now politically incorrect dinner plate from that venerable resort, the Homestead in Hot Springs, Virginia. I've largely avoided so far paper placemats from diners and personalized silver and napery from upscale restaurants. But here is a corkscrew from the Palmer House. It's impossible to predict what might turn up in an eBay search under restaurant. In fact, restaurants occasionally turn up. One was on there the other day for a million four hundred and seventy-five thousand starting bid. No bids as of today, so it's still there. <clears throat> to capture this reservation book from Chicago's famous supper club, The Pump Room, I sat up until two in the morning to ward off any snipers who might try to snatch it away from me in the final seconds. It's the restaurant's final book, closing with an auction of the equipment and fixtures on Valentine's Day in 1976. And then there's the commercial Duncan Hines, the products which carried his name during his lifetime and perpetuate his memory to this day. This goes too far afield for me, although a couple of times, not as many as three, I think, can't hurt, I suppose. Perhaps someone else will do this. The collection is fascinating to me, and it's peculiarly hum human to be interested in our past, and peculiarly the province of the collector to be nostalgic about it. Though this collection, through this collection, I'm reliving my experiences in learning about good food. There's always something to collect, something new, something meaningful, something within one's means. But this is only a single example. The last thing I want to do is to encourage you to collect what I'm collecting. More important is the discovery of the new tools that make such collections possible. These tools will bring major changes to the book and antique worlds. Marin County Rare Book Dealer Ed Glazer, in talking about book pricing at the annual Out-of-Print and Antiquarian Book Market Seminar in Colorado Springs, describes the feeding chain in which books move from flea markets and used book dealers through scouts and better book dealers to the specialist, with prices increasing and profits made at every step along the way. The tools on the Internet are permitting the isolated used book dealer to go straight to the big city collector. 
indeed, the publication that spawned the Malkin Lectures, the Antiquarian Bookman, now A.B. Bookman's Weekly, will have to change or become even more redundant than its current name. For decades, it served booksellers by doing what the Internet can now do more quickly and less expensively. Book dealers are worried about disruption of their sources of supply, but at the same time, they are using the Internet to dispose of out-of-field items that had previously flooded their shelves and warehouses. Librarians are worried that they will have to spend hours on the Internet and fight with collectors for item, items that were previously spoon-fed to them by favored book dealers. They, too, will have to change, and some already have. The transformations in the distribution of the rare, the antique, and the just plain used are not going to go away. And as for me, I think my adventures in book collecting are just beginning. Thank you. to the day when one of our speakers will say, excuse me, I have to go execute a bit for a minute. I hope you will join our speaker, Mrs. Malkin, in the first floor staff lounge of Alderman Library for the reception that follows immediately.